My name's Juliet Spare, and this podcast is produced by Spare Me Media for modernslaverystories.com. A place for leaders, thinkers, survivors, and eyewitnesses to empathetically discuss issues surrounding modern slavery and supply chains. This episode is brought to you by BRE, an international building science organisation and Sustain Worldwide. If words like data, transparency, sustainability, health and safety and survivors mean anything to you, then you're listening to the right podcast. And if you're interested in learning why responsible and ethical sourcing is important in the global construction supply chain and what to do if you discover any unethical practices, then keep listening. Today, it's less likely if modern slavery is found in supply chains, but when. And the construction industry is one of four sectors singled out at risk of discovering slavery in supply chains because of the multiple layers of subcontracting. According to the ILO, one of the key issues arising from the emergence of global supply chains and the network of suppliers, manufacturers, warehouses, distribution centres, wholesalers and retailers is that of the working conditions along the chain. Podcasting their thoughts, expertise and ideas on transparency, traceability, disclosure, sustainability and the importance of data with me are Alice Hans, Strategic Procurement Manager at the Building and Civil Engineering Company, Sir Robert McAlpine. Danny Hobson, Head of Ethics and Sustainability at Arco, a family business for over 130 years and the UK's largest provider of safety products and services. And Chris Harrop, Director of Sustainability at Marshalls and an Officer of the British Empire for Services to the Prevention of Modern Slavery and Exploitation. One of Chris's many roles is to guide the business through its ongoing commitment to the environment and supply chain ethics. And Marshalls has mapped its modern slavery risk for all countries where it has business operations, sources goods or has supply chains. So in this podcast, Chris, I'm going to come to you first. I really liked the practical tip, get out into your supply chain and walk your supply chain, included in your modern slavery country profiling. Can you tell us what you mean by that, walking your supply chain? Well, it starts really so, I mean, you can do the desk research and the analysis and look at where you're procuring from, what countries, where the data of those countries say, so look at Transparency International, uh, any of the main data sources to work out the areas of concern. But then there is absolutely no substitute for visiting either yourself or a member of your, your own team, visiting that country, that supplier, and walking that supply chain, visiting the supply chain right the way back from the, uh, the, the exporter, the tier one factory, the tier two factory, if there's any subcontracting, and in our case, for all the way back to the quarry where the raw material is taken out of the ground. And only by work, walking that uh, supply chain do you really see what's happening. Uh, and it's with your own eyes that you can see what's happening because data and reports only go so far. You know, what is really happening at that point in that situation? And then when you talk to the various experts and partners and suppliers, you're doing so with, an, with, a, with a view to understanding what it really looks like and what the issues really are. So you're making supply chain scrutiny as tangible as possible. Yes, it's, it's real. You know, the, the supply chains, I mean, you know, it can be academic, can't it? But actually, what is a supply chain? A supply chain is a collection of people, workers, companies, raw materials who are making a product for you. How is that product sourced from the raw materials all the way through its transport, logistics, um, subcontracting, 
components all the way through to a finished product and how it then transports to you. And there are employees, workers, colleagues in every stage of that. And we need to understand who they are and whether they are exposed to risk or not. It's about seeing people. Seeing. It's about seeing. So we call it Go See Walk. Oh, okay. So, you know, go and see. Go and see. Alice Hans, uh, I'd like to just introduce you now into the podcast. Can you tell us a bit about what you do at Sir Robert McAlpine? So I'm currently based in our in our procurement department and have been sort of full time for I think about the past uh, four years now. And very much since um, the Modern Slavery Act in, in 2015, when that was introduced, my focus on on my, uh, the work that I have been doing is, I suppose, um, first of all, how we um, comply with the with the Modern Slavery Act. But it very quickly moved into beyond compliance and what we would say is you know actively responding to to that law, but also so the the risks and the the information that we're starting um, to to amass and and I mean as for us very crudely um, we we sort of split the the risk um, into two key areas that of our labour on site in the UK um, and that of our of our global supply chain um, material supply chain. And um, to be honest, we've very much focused on the UK labour market at the moment because we felt that that's where immediately we have a lot more influence and a lot more um, sort of leverage to do immediate change and immediate kind of um, proactive actions. Um, and also arguably that's where there's less known and and the naivety and ignorance might exist, I think, because people don't really still don't believe that in the UK you have that risk. That is not to say, you know, the, there is a huge issue out in the global supply chain, but we need to actively work with the likes of Marshalls to to tackle that, and because our sort of influence and our pull um, as you as you go down that supply chain lessens. So we've been very much focusing on the UK aspect of of that risk, and and that has involved um, a sort of uh, third party audit program um, going out to our key strategic. Um, subcontractors and also getting out on our sites as, as Chris says and, and sort of getting to I suppose the sort of coal face of what is one of our one of our coal faces but one that we do have a lot of immediate influence over. I should say it, you know and reiterate it, it's illegal to force people to work against their yeah. will and the British government nevertheless estimates around 13,000 people are living mm. in Britain as modern slaves and every fourth victim is a child. The law I'm just going to reference is, you know, under Section 54 of the Modern Slavery Act, this is the requirement to make all businesses making more than £36 million a year to annually publish a modern slavery statement. But a recent review of the Act suggested Section 54 had helped raise awareness of slavery and human trafficking in supply chains and helped encourage some companies to address the issue, but blamed a lack of enforcement and penalties for below-standard statements mm-hmm. and a lack of compliance from over a third of eligible companies. And the review called for the government to take tougher action to make companies take their responsibility to eradicate slavery from supply chains seriously. Now, Danny, I'm going to come to you. Could you just uh, tell us what you do at Arco? Yes, I'm the Head of Ethics and Sustainability. So my role is largely around ensuring the compliance of our supply chain. So if uh, our category teams, our procurement teams, 
wish to source a new product, then we are that first step in that chain. So once they've identified the factory or the country that from which they want to source, we are that first step in that chain to take some independence away from the procurement teams to, to make sure that the supply chain from where they want to source is compliant with with both the you know the ethical uh, guidelines that we've set in place that meet those requirements of the ETI and uh, obviously of the Modern Slavery Act. You're a bit of a supply chain expert for Arco, is that fair to say? I've got a fair amount of experience in it. <laughs> yeah. Going to sort of what Chris was saying about seeing yeah. the supply chain, you regularly visit your manufacturers and factories, and you, as Arco, you produce safety equipment and you test it in your in-house laboratory. Does having that in-house laboratory and that sort of testing phase and those visits, does that help sort of visualise the supply chain so that we see the people involved and see that, you know, their safety is so important? Yeah, I mean, to to back up Chris's comments, to, to me it's absolutely critical. So actually having a view of your supply chain, visiting the factories... There is, there is nothing like it. So you, you can have a piece of paper, that, which is an audit, on that factory, but really the audit only tells you a certain story. It's that moment in time. Actually going to a factory, speaking to the owners, speaking to the management team, speaking to the workers is absolutely critical. Seeing that factory in action, how they are undertaking those processes and policies that, they, that they've given to you. So to me, understanding the attitude and the dedication that the ownership have, making sure that those match... Uh, our hierarchy as well within Arco is absolutely key to us. So it's, it, and then you can get an idea of what sort of, uh, how they're passing that ethos down through through their supply chain as well. So yeah, what the laboratory does to us is always is such a highly regulated uh, area of business, you know, with, with personal protective equipment. It's uh, having that due diligence processes in place that the, that the PPE regs dictate it's uh, so important for us to have that final check. But what we find is actually an ethical supply chain gives you good quality as well. So what you find is if, if a factory is in control of its ethical policies, its, its procedures, you invariably get good staff retention, you get good management systems, you get a well-run factory from a financial perspective as well. So since we've had these, you know, we've had ethical policies and processes in place since 2007, that's when we joined the Ethical Trading Initiative, and then having the laboratory as well, that's decreased our faulty returns from 0.26 to 0.09%, which is not only a huge cost saving, but that's just an indication of, of the, the, the increased quality from, from, from the products, you know, so... Yeah. You were you were nodding, you know, yeah, I, in a total I, agreement there, Chris, with yeah. the, about the sort of ethics of the supply chain. I think the, the, I mean, the most important uh, word that, that was said then was uh, attitude, and and what you know the good suppliers that you can work with through a supply chain are the ones that will share your understanding and your commitment. Um, because you can have a suite of policies, practices, ISO standards that that look fantastic when a third-party auditor goes in, but if they're just on the shelf and not actually practically implemented and the workers within the the supply chain don't understand it, don't see it, don't feel it, don't live it every day, then actually those policies are pointless. So the commitment, the understanding within the business of the managers, of the owners, right the way through to the workers is the, is the key thing. And absolutely, that drives quality. And, yeah. you know, people are always challenging me saying, well, you know, ethics costs money. 
ethics doesn't actually cost money. I mean, you know, if we're, we're talking the difference between paying somebody and not paying somebody, well, clearly paying somebody costs money. Not paying somebody is illegal. So paying somebody costs money. So that's the, that's the price. That's the start. Then it's about efficiency. And it could be quality. It could be returns. Um, and that is where you get the main benefits. And there's a really good link between good quality, well-run, productive businesses that are focused on the attention to detail and attitude, and then the, the, the impact on ethics um, and commitment to, to treating workers fair, fairly. How long is this journey taking through convincing businesses to see being ethically as putting them ahead of other businesses. Uh, you said you've been leading on sustainability at Marshall since 2004? Yeah, it's in 2004. I think the challenge for businesses, especially at the moment, is a huge level of competition, huge level of price pressure. And, and that pressure manifests itself in one of two ways, doesn't it? So we're all about competitive advantage. So price pressure results in either a race for the bottom, which opens up through a business model that it is just about cost down, opens up the ability for, for kind of uh, criminals to come in and exploit um, as pressures on basically just on the cost. Or it drives a business to seek competitive advantage through either differentiation or quality. And in that way, they're able to drive costs down through productivity and through improvement. And, and there's a real dichotomy of approach between those two, the race to the bottom or the race to quality and productivity and efficiency. And that's, that's the shift that we're all looking for, isn't it? It's not, yeah. is, is, the, is the race to equality. Uh, what would you say was Sir Robert McAlpine's attitude to forced labour? Um, well, absolutely. We would you know, disagree with it and, um, and, and hope that it's not, um, not um, part of um, anything we do, but that's a hope and we understand that actually, I think it was something a lot of, quite a few people have said, but I remember Chris Blythe saying it from the CIOB that, you know, if you haven't found exploitation, you basically haven't looked hard enough. Um, and that's the reality of it. And that's a reality that we, we're very much aware of and um, we sort of own in a way, I suppose. And, um, and I think the key with any organisation and, and how you should be held accountable is, I think, as I said earlier, you can comply, but actually, how do you respond? And, and I would, and I think with, with the Modern Slavery Act, and it has taken, and there's still not enough compliance with, with businesses, but we're seeing it, you know, we're seeing improvement. And I would hope if you put our three statements next to each other, you would see that improvement of um, being open and honest more. And, and you, know, you look back at the first and you think, well, actually, but we were on a learning curve because it's businesses learning to actually talk about their risk more openly and not being penalised for it. And what I would hope to see is that, you know, you could put your hand up and say, this is a risk. Um, we might have found this, but be judged on actually how you respond to it. And that's what you should be held account for. And that's what I, I would hold myself account to for and our board and our, our senior leadership team and anyone else into, in terms of how you tackle that. And I think that's the key, really. That, and that was one of my questions, actually, was mm. sort of how does a, how does a board respond mm. to that yep. Well, there. I mean, again, as I said, you know, we we only started looking at in terms of modern slavery and F and, and labour exploitation from the Act. Absolutely, the Act drove that. But we very very quickly, right from the top, um, from our board, it was clear that they were hugely supportive of it. We, you know, we're a business that's 150 years old. 
We've built some iconic buildings, sort of our heritage. We, we, we say that we want to build Britain's future heritage. But we can only really be proud of that if everyone that is involved in those projects is treated fairly. Um, and therefore, there is that belief that we've got a lot of work to do, um, but we need to be active and, and they support that. Um, and they support the work that we drive initially is driven through procurement, but we, we work with multiple departments across our business. Um, and it is a huge learning curve. Absolutely. We're learning every day. But the more we learn um, and, the, and I get the continued support from our from our board and our senior leadership team. So and, I, and you know, and I expect that to continue. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned being proud. Danny, I can see you're really proud of what you do in terms of educating your colleagues on why sustainability and ethical supply chains is so important and you set up the lab is, is that am i correct, correct. Yep. yeah yes. what yep. what what drives you to to shout as it were to all your colleagues and educate them about being more sustainable shifting hearts and minds so that everyone understands what you're doing our procurement team are driven by ethics now so in in terms of in terms of their sourcing practices they are proud to actually you know go through those necessary steps in order to uh, be proud of the of the choices that they're making yeah to actually check the supply chain and check the attitude of the owners etc as i mentioned the bit the biggest risk to them as a buying team is is subcontracting so if you have uh, a factory that accepts your orders that you believe you have done relevant due diligence work on but you've not done it quite well enough and that factory then chooses to subcontract. Chris mentioned about a race to the bottom. Yeah, there, there are factories always want to do things cheaper or there's certainly is an option there on hit delivery deadlines that you've imposed on them that they can't meet without subcontracting. So actually teaching our procurement teams to look out for those type of scenarios, yeah, to be aware of those and see them up front before we start opening a relationship up with those factories. It's absolutely key to us. So they, from from teaching our procurement teams, what to do, you know, getting external trainers in, you know, such as the ETI, Action Sustainability, teaching about responsible procurement, us, myself coaching those colleagues as well. It, it gives them the tools and the know-how, the experience actually to deal with issues and to know what to look for. So it's absolutely key for us. And then as our other employees can also then take, be proud of, of what we're doing as a company so that we, we are not sourcing unethically, yeah, we are doing the right things that that we can do. We're making the right choices. Leverage is an issue. You can't. You you have, as an ethical team. Yeah, we're fairly small. So our biggest ability to make change is through our procurement teams and education of our, of our procurement teams. We can't be everywhere at once. So we are so reliant on those teams when they're going out to factories, checking that those that ethos, those policies are being uh, driven on a daily basis. Checking the people going to the factories are seeing what they need to see. What well, would you? It's about hearts and minds, of course, isn't it? You know, it's not about tick boxes. You know, tick boxes drive a behaviour, generally the wrong behaviour. Yeah. Now, a compliance only, rather than what's really going on. So, you know, if somebody, you know, if there are, there's a part of the factory that you you see, you know, they, those workers look a bit dishevelled. You know, their, their heads are down. Um, you know, they're not interacting with anybody else. What's really going on? You know, are they under the cosh for whatever reason? And it's about inquiring and asking and looking. And that, that can only come with attitude. It can't come with a tick box mentality. What's your greatest challenge then, do you see, in convincing more construction firms to shift their mindset and become more 
empathetic as opposed to ticking that box? I think, well, I mean, it, it, there's a difference between the, the kind of the UK supply chain and then overseas. So if you just think about the UK, there's definitely still an ingrained view that modern slavery is an international problem. So the government put out some stats that, you know, that it's, you can argue whether it's 12 or 13,000. Personally, I think that underrepresents it by about a tenth. So it's more like about 120,000. And construction is one of the top four. So there's, there's definitely a belief that we need to challenge that, that, uh, that it isn't in the UK and then that it is in our sites. And we've seen some very high profile um, reports very recently in a site in London. Mm. So it's there, and, and certainly from a, you know, from a marshal's perspective, we've done lots to train our uh, register of inst- uh, approved contractors, the landscapers, to, to spot and see, um, and they're, you know, they're into double figures in terms of reporting now. We trained all of our logistics and delivery drivers to spot and see, and within 24 hours of that training, we'd already discovered within the construction companies that we were delivering to worries um, about some of the workers in that supply chain. So we need to challenge ourselves and, and stop thinking it's only an overseas perspective. And then internationally, I think there's, there's a view that it's all too difficult. If it's all too difficult, then you are just falling back on the it's only cost. And there's no other way of improving things, you know, improving quality, improving supply chain, improving productivity, improving conditions for workers. You have that before you have to go out and see it. That goes back to what you were saying, Alice, about it's not essentially if you find slavery in supply chains, it's when and what you do about it. I mean, I think in terms of, so just picked up what Chris was saying, in terms of the challenges that we have in the construction industry, um, I think there are two, and and this affects how you respond and, and how your response is taken, two key things that stand out to me is that you've got to talk about the whole supply chain. So there is a lot of focus on main contractors, and rightly so, because we run those sites. But you've got to look at everything from client. You've got to engage your client all the way down. And then by only doing that in terms of the engagement and getting everyone, everyone on board, would you get really sustained and embedded change, I think. And it's, it's driving that message up and down that supply chain. Um, I think the other key thing is why construction is is highlighted as high risk is as you picked up Danny about we subcontract we are a construction construction management company we manage a site we don't do arguably 90% of what is actually done on site everything is subcontracted out and by that nature you do lose the transparency so it's about it's our business model so it's about us actually looking at our business model and really addressing how we can make that far more robust and resilient to the threats that make it um, make it really easy to exploit. And that's not easy. That's looking at, you know, change that's been in practice for, you know, or, or tackling something that's been there for, for years and years. But I think that's the only way we will get real sustained change. But also acknowledging it's one of these things, you know, once you close off one avenue, you can't rest on your laurels. There'll be another avenue that criminals will exploit. And it's just keeping that engagement. And I think but to get true kind of um, embedment and change, you need that whole supply chain. And we've got some really engaged in clients, which is fantastic. And, well. and that transparency. Yeah is down to seeing it, isn't yes. it? Essentially, yeah, it, it almost there. sounds very simple, doesn't it? <laughs> Go and see. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by BRE and Sustain Worldwide, and we're talking about global supply chains in the construction business and why ethical and responsible leadership matters. 
with Alice Hans, Strategic Procurement Manager at Sir Robert McAlpine, Chris Harrop, Director of Sustainability at Marshall, and Danny Hobson, Head of Ethics and Sustainability at Arco. Danny, what would you find or what would you think would be one of the biggest challenges you face in continuing your goal for ethical and responsible procurement? I would say it's... So we've, we've been helping our customers with how to address their obligations under the Act because companies are new since the Act was introduced. Many companies really haven't... They've been doing so much, but really maybe not as much as they should have been doing. So we've been helping other companies get started, and I think that's the biggest challenge now is you've got lots of companies happily sourcing from UK-based organisations and really unsure where to go next in terms of actually mapping their supply chains, in terms of really conducting due diligence on their supply chains. So in terms of us going forward, what would help us is by educating our customers, you know, training our customers and potential customers and other businesses. You know, we have a thought collaboration piece within the industry. So it's around education Uh, giving people the information in order that they can then ask the right questions of their suppliers, which will in turn increase pressure on organisations to do the right thing and and be be more open and transparent with what they're doing, how they're doing it. For instance, you know, the ETI will will talk about a risk-based approach and a due diligence framework, and and, and it's a perfect model for me. So, you know, identify the risks, work out where you can have most leverage and, and actually put your time and resources into what where you can achieve the most change and and that's that's a great tip but you only really get that by walking the walk speaking to those organizations even if our customers or potential customers can't actually see the end of the supply chain what you can do is go and talk about some of those supplies in the middle of that supply chain and actually understand how they're doing those things chris what would you what would your advice be if say someone was listening to this podcast and you know a small construction business just starting out or wanting to grow what you know now compared to setting it all up in 2004 what would be really good bit of advice from a modern slavery perspective there's lots of really good information out there and really good simple six point five point checklists of what to look for so you know very simple things um who's on your site why are they on the site what do they look like what's their attitude you know simple things about you know where are they living do they all come together in a in a in a van who controls their wages so really simple things to ask questions and then of suppliers it's, it's about looking at those modern slavery statements. So do they have a modern slavery statement? And is it anything more than we think modern slavery is horrible? Full stop. Because that's compliant at the moment. So you know, what have they actually done? You know, they, we spend a lot of time being pretty transparent in terms of our country profiling. We publish every year our country profiling for every country we source from against a whole range of different measures. And all of that's available online. So go to those online sources and and basically steal shamelessly, you know, learn from others. But fundamentally, who's on your site? What are they doing? What do they look like? Do they look free, happy, engaged, safe, um, and then move on from there. For people listening who aren't involved in the construction industry, it is a real and very tangible issue. Um, And as an example, one of the biggest ever modern slavery networks has just been exposed after two victims were spotted eating at a soup kitchen in the West Midlands. And this 
has meant the uh, the identification of these victims by Hope for Justice um, has led to the unravelling of an organised crime group um, which had trafficked and duped hundreds of people to work on factories and in farms from Poland. The police say it was more like 400 victims and they would earn £20 a day and the gang would make more than £2 million between 2012 and 2017. So there's a lot of profit to be made in the exploitation of people and it's those people that need protecting and only by having sustainable procurement, admitting slavery admits into supply chains and addressing it will their lives potentially be improved. In terms of making it tangible for people to understand what a construction business would do, how would you suggest, Alice, that Sir Robert McAlpine explains to its clients Mm -hmm. and, you know... not just on this podcast, but you, to say to people, I, I do speak to the board, you know, yeah. procurement is high on the agenda. Yeah. How, how, can, how can that message get through so more businesses can follow yeah. the lead? <clears throat> I think sharing the knowledge that you that you gain from the work that you're doing is really important and there are some really good um, sort of initiatives and groups out there like the um, Gangmaster Labour and Abuse Authority Construction Protocol, um, there's things like Supply Chain Sustainability School and I think for those that are maybe taking more of a lead in in responding to the, to, to, to the issues, it's making sure that you don't keep those findings confined to, to your business and to your operations because ultimately we actually all fish from the same pond so Chris referred to that that thing that instant that's been in the press recently of a big main contractor that had a site raided we will share their supply chain so if they've got a problem on their site we have a problem on our site um, but only by collective action can you really combat that um, so I think that's you know, that's the, a message that you can also send to clients is, you know, actively show how you are addressing, but then how you're trying to, you know, feed that back in, and into the industry as a whole and wider business arena. And those groups are, are, are I think, a key for, for sharing that. And and we, as I referred to earlier, we are doing, we are sort of doing this, I suppose it is, it's, it is an audit program. We're using a third party, but I constantly saying to this third party we're using, you work with a lot of people across the industry. You're st- and you're starting to work with more on this topic, you are amassing a lot of, you can see the key issues across multiple sites because it's not a Sir Robert McAlpine problem. It's a, it's a it's an industry problem that the things that we might find on our site aren't, aren't um, isolated to our site. They're, they're an industry trend. So it's really key to, to show how you're addressing that as an industry and not just keeping it as a, well, it won't be a competitive advantage if you just, if you just deal with it yourself. You've got to share that across, across the industry, I think. And that, and that is key. Chris. <clears throat> Ultimately, the people who are on that site, the managers on that site need to feel empowered that they, they are aware of the signs and that they know what to do. And uh, we don't want to turn site people into investigators. And certainly the work we've done with, with our truck drivers, we don't want them to be investigators at all. They don't interfere. But they feel that they know what the signs are and they know what to do. They know who to call. So they phone the helpline straight away if there's any worry. And the chances are that there'll be other people who've had the same worries. So the police and the authorities can cross-check and then they can build a case. 
So it's about people on site being aware and empowered to look and find. It's an interesting word you use there, empowerment, and that is if more people have that empowerment to think about someone else, to see someone else and see that something's not right. Yeah. And, and it's as simple as an app, you know, so, you know, they, they, um, the Unseen app can be on downloaded onto people's corporate mobile phones and people just encouraged, if you have any worries at all against these kind of mm. indicators of slavery, just make a, just make a report. Now, there's no downside to that, and the chances are, like I said, the authorities can cross-check that because it may well be that, that it's been reported before mm. and the more times it's looked at and reported, the more chance of an investigation. And there could be all sorts going on behind the scenes that we don't know about, but we just need to get as many people looking and, in, and, and reporting, not investigating and getting involved, but just looking, and if there's anything you're unsure about, use the app, make a phone call, just report it. And I think, can I, Please the, do. The, linked to that, and, and I think what Danny said, education is key. If, if a subcontractor says to me, what's the one thing that I should start with? I always say, educate your, your staff and your people, because sadly, this isn't, it is effective in all sort of aspects of our life. And that actually piques people's attention. And I think you tend to get a lot of interest because of that. It's not just in their work environment, it's in their personal life. And people are naturally interested and, and, and concerned and actually don't you know want to help and that's that's you know use that to to help that education and show them how it affects all aspects of life and uh, and yeah only by education will you then give the people the empowerment um, and your people empowerment to then act so i think that's that's almost one of the key things that i say to our supply chain and education is empowerment and yeah. and and sharing that yeah. information according to international labor organization statistics 2.78 million people die as a result of exposure to health and safety hazards at work. And fatal and non-fatal work-related injuries, illnesses and disease cost the global economy around 4% of GDP. So these are people on pretty ropey supply chains. How has your goal to keep people safe at work through the products and services that Arco deliver taken you on your journey to see your supply chains? Yeah, so that it's, it's been one of the key aspects of, of our journey. So it's keeping our customers safe, keeping our own people safe is absolutely at the core of everything we do. And then once we started sourcing from other non-UK supply chains, it was clear to see that the the health and safety standards in some of those areas were really not as had not progressed in the same way the UK standards had. So, health and safety is a key aspect of of all ethical auditing. Yeah, and in fact, it's one of the most easily auditable areas as well because it, it's 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 physical. You can see it. So, it's key for us to actually keep the people who are making our products in a in a in a healthy and safe situation. So, not just from the you know the physical safety issues that from working on machinery etc but from from the health in terms of working additional hours or work, working you know extra hours more than should be so it's it's absolutely key for us to to educate the factories from where we source on some of the improvements that they can make in line with both the audits but some beyond audit as well and just just making sure that those people are you know not putting themselves in harm's way that making sure they are not overworking themselves and, and putting themselves at risk through fatigue etc so it's absolutely key in, in what we do and like i say it's one of the most easily auditable areas 
as well. So there's absolutely no reason not to do it once you've identified from where you're sourcing your products. There is no reason not to take those steps. And obviously, we all work for a health and safety company. Yep. So actually, we've got those core skills. So whenever we go out to see those factories, actually just, you know, from factory to us, from speaking to workers, speaking to management, it should be easy to to identify those issues and, and help those factories improve. And that goes back to the sort of empowerment and then trying to not just looking at it from a UK perspective, but a global perspective and helping uh, companies see that mapping their global supply chain isn't an an impossible task. Going back to what you were saying, really, Chris, isn't it? We've all got really, you know, as businesses, we've all, we buy lots of different things. So, you know, one of the things that I found really useful years ago was we categorise the things that we buy. So we have raw materials, then we have goods for resale, and then we have uh, consumables and and general services. Now, you know, it's very uh, very difficult for me to look at the supply chain for my iPhone as a, as a product, you know, as a consumable type product. But it's absolutely possible for me to look at the supply chain for my raw materials, and it's perfectly uh, possible and actually required for me to look at the supply chain for goods for resale. So, you know, it's about looking at where you can and should have influence, and then within that start to, to do the go-see walk. It's clearly, for the products that I buy, you know, for, for consumables, working with companies like Arco takes a lot of the worry away and the risk, but it also there are, there are things that you cannot affect. Um, so concentrate on the areas you can affect, raw materials, goods for resale, and your own company operations in a country. You're nodding in agreement there, Alice. One of the challenges that as a, in the construction industry and perhaps a main contractor has is that, you know, we might have 70 projects, but every single project has a different supply chain. And that's one of the challenges, I think, that is potentially quite unique to the sector. You're, we're, not a, we're not a manufacturing um, business where we have a set order book of, so I don't know if you're Rolls-Royce, the, 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 the turbines or whatever coming in. So there is that challenge that, you know, different projects come on different supply chains. We don't necessarily dictate or have absolute power over the supply chains, but that's why working, you've got to work and engage your clients, their architect teams that are often brought on before we get involved in a project, and then filter that engagement right down through the supply chain. And that's one of the challenges that we have to have to own and have to, to address. But again, it's it's working with the likes of people like Marshalls and Arco that can help us with that, um, with with those challenges um, as well. But that is that is a challenge that you know that we have to address and that we face. Danny, <clears throat> yeah, what what we are finding though, which is which is a great result of the act itself is that when we're being asked now from for clients like Marshalls and, and, and other companies, is that responsible sourcing now takes up a much larger percentage of any tender. So it's it's around price, it's around delivery, absolutely, but actually now responsible sourcing since the introduction of the Act has increased the amount of uh, that takes up on the tender. So, so you know, the more that you can explain mm-hmm. how you source responsibly, the more chance you have in a... Uh, a chance of winning a tender which takes it away from this race to the bottom that we've mentioned a few times so it's not just about price it's not just about delivery now it's about you know it's about how you source ethically as well which is which is great news and, and that type of change in the way that companies approach new business is is great for everybody because that will ensure that that gets replicated through the supply chain 
I think the, the the thing that probably I, you know we need to we need to address as a sector is that this is not an audit process. You know, audits and and the word compliance can be can be effective in terms of yes and no to a technical performance. But what we're talking about here is people and people and behaviour. And what we've got to do is, and we've talked a little bit before, I mentioned this, this word empowerment and involvement and engagement. You know, we need to empower people to see what looks wrong. And if it looks wrong, it generally is wrong. And start to, to challenge all the way, whether it's the UK or internationally, to challenge some of those feelings and give people like, the ability and the empowerment to start to challenge that. An audit going in and making sure that technically something performs correctly or that there are locks on the door or that there is a sprinkler system or that there is a policy in place, that's, that's okay. But if they're not using it and following it and the hearts and minds aren't there, it's irrelevant. So we've really got to focus on people and the workers and the, the colleagues within those supply chains. I think you're you're so spot on. I, I'm so pleased you brought it back to the reason why this must happen. It's down to the people. And we're talking about some of the most vulnerable workers in our supply chain. We're talking about people who don't necessarily have a voice for themselves and they need help to raise that voice. Yep, so... Education, yeah, but having, you know, if you like, a, f a friend on their side to actually, you know, give them a, give the factory additional education. It, it may not be that the factory is knowingly doing something wrong, but it may just be the way that you can help that factory progress, yeah? So there may not be anything vindictive in what they're doing. It's just simply around education and giving that factory that chance to improve. But we are talking about protecting those, those vulnerable workers, you know. So would you put yourself in that work environment when you are touring those factories? Would you be comfortable in that work environment the way that those workers are being treated? And that's a, that's a question you have to ask yourself. Mm. And I think that also then picking up on what you say about environment, absolutely key to look at people, but it's also look at around that and the environment yeah. that in terms of you're creating, whether it's your site, whether it's a factory, because that can then exasperate yeah. why our industry or is is a risk and it's the environment that you put people in so it's addressing that and and the workplace as well um, which which is key i think if something doesn't look right yeah. the chances are it isn't so if the site's messy and the health and safety looks dangerous if it looks dangerous then they you know the site is probably cutting corners on safety and probably cutting corners on workers as well so you know it's about looking most people know what feels right and so it's about encouraging them to feel confident that they can put their hand up and say you know what it's just those guys in the corner over there they, they don't look right we need to we need to have investigate we need to have that looked at and I think again just one of the key things that I've picked up and it sounds so simple but is the language that you use when when and in particular when we're engaging with our supply chain so I ref, you know I've, we are we have gone out to our strategic supply chain and essentially I suppose we have audited them but I actually haven't used the word audit I've actually gone and said we want to do the supply chain assessment because I felt as soon as you put audit in that that's then that certain perception of what it is and yes we've used a third party but another that again you could say rather soft skill that we've done is most of the time an SRM person has gone with that third party because we've approached it in terms of collaboration we haven't gone and said to them this is not us deciding whether we continue to work with you or not it's us actually trying to 
understand more about our supply chain and why we're such a risk and learn from that and do that together and and give us a bit more of a pieces to the jigsaw. And then what we take from that is obviously how we address our concerns. And there have been concerns that have come out of that. And we are, you know, we actively then have to address those. But it's down to just the key language that we, we've used um, that I think, and we've had a really positive response from the supply chain. I have to say more so than I thought. They've been really collaborative and cooperative in it and and i think that the language that you used has helped yeah Yeah, collaboration absolutely the Mm. key word there because the last thing you want to be doing is is putting penalties on a factory for not performing yeah it's it's all about collaboration so if the factory needs to improve how can you as a customer of theirs actually help that factory improve going back into the sort of language you use and and not using the word audit um you're modern slavery country profiling you say in there about the language of modern slavery needing to be adaptable how does that work between different countries it's about using the right language for the right people and the right audience so if i'm engaging with um, a government minister in india i'll be talking in the language of the sustainable development goals i'll be talking about decent work i'll be talking about you know 8.7 um, I probably won't be saying modern slavery because of the you know, cultural aspects. Um, but if I'm talking to um, somebody on a construction site in the UK, I'm probably talking to them more about you know, what's going on on the site, you know, everything all right, and what's happening, what time do you get here usually, you know, whereabouts are you living, is it a decent place to live? And I'll be using the different language, and, it, and it's all points in between. So government ministers... India, China, Vietnam, SDGs language, right the way down to to a worker, whether it's in the UK or um, in a factory in Vietnam through an interpreter, I'll be asking really quite simple things about food or where they're living or what do they do in their spare time, you know, because that then tells me, do they get spare time? And if they don't get spare time, so it's it's different language to find out and to be able to engage um, and all points in between those two extremes, of course. Now, I am coming to my final question and I just want to ask you all why do you do what you do Danny why do you do what you do very simply this is the most rewarding job I've ever had because I ultimately can affect positively the lives of vulnerable workers yeah it may only be a very very small thing that I actually undertake but actually a small change can actually mean so much to a vulnerable worker so yeah, I mean, that's that's why I do what I do and that's why I try and do it to the best of my ability. Alice? Yeah, absolutely. It's very rewarding. And I think once your eyes have been opened only slightly, it's very hard to, to look away and, and not and not proactively try and tackle it. And I'm proud to work for, for, for Sir Rob McAlpine. Um, it's a very proud company, but we can ultimately only be proud of what we do if we really work continually to make sure everyone involved is 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 treated fairly so it's yeah that's why i do what i do chris i think i do what i do because i mean ultimately i absolutely believe that business can be a force for good so you know the there are two sides to that one businesses is actually made up of people and people generally know what's right and wrong and that everybody knows it's it's not right to to pollute the environment and to exploit people um, so businesses are people. So you know when people start shouting about evil businesses and corporate capitalism, they are just people. Um, and with that comes, I'm, I'm convinced that 
you can do the right thing, you can be responsible, you can make sure that you don't pollute, you can make sure that you treat workers fairly and that you improve conditions and become a successful business at the same time. Um, and from a Marshall's perspective, you know, our shareholders are pension funds and you know, those pensions need to be paid. Um, that, that's life. Um, but we need to do that in a way that, that does things in the right way. And we have something called the Marshall's Way, which I'm very proud of, which is you know, we do the right things for the right reasons in the right way. And by doing that, we become successful. On that note, I'd like to thank everyone for taking the time to share their expertise, their ideas and their empathy. Because I think if it's shared, it's heard. And hopefully more businesses will realise the importance of responsible and eth ethical leadership. The Global Slavery Index suggests 48 million people worldwide are affected by forced labour and modern slavery and that, that needs to change. Thank you to BRE and Sustain Worldwide for supporting the recording of this podcast ahead of their conference taking place at Aviva London on the 6th of November, investigating responsible and ethical leadership for global construction supply chains. For further details, head to the events page at www.bregroup.com forward slash events. Thanks also to Gordon Miller from Sustain Worldwide, Seema Sheff from BRE, and Tim Stacey for composing the music you can hear on this podcast. Goodbye. My name's Juliet Spare, and this podcast is produced by Spare Me Media for modernslaverystories.com. 